gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. And we ask your blessing upon us as we study Hebrews chapter 10 today. We pray that we would learn something new about ourselves and about you and about what it means to be your disciple. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then, he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Thank you, E.B., for that beautiful reading of Hebrews chapter 10. And clearly this is a community that the author of this book thinks needs some encouragement. They need to be told to persevere. They need to be told that they need endurance. They need to be reminded of all the previous struggles that they have already overcome as a community. And then they need to be told at the end, we are not among those who shrink back. We're among those who keep persevering with faith. We're among those being saved. And so I just want you to be in touch with this community right from the get-go who needs some encouragement. They might need a little graceful kick in the pants, you know, a little cold water dumped on their head to, to say, wake up. You know, you are among a community that is being sanctified by the great high priest himself. Don't lose heart. Don't abandon ship keep moving forward, keep persevering. That message really comes home at the end of this chapter. But to really kind of back it up and to go to the very beginning of this, we start out by talking about how the law, and that is the law entrusted to the people of Israel given through Moses at Sinai, how that law had only a shadow of the good things to come. And uh, we, we kind of talked a bit about this last week, how the high priesthood and the earthly tabernacle and tent that um, was erected in the wilderness, how that had only a shadow, was only a shadow of the, the heavenly tent, the heavenly sanctuary that we are invited to enter that was made possible by our great high priest. And you might recall, we talked a little bit about uh, Plato and his allegory of the cave where a bunch of people are basically, you know, living their life chained up in a cave, looking at shadows that the sun from the outside world casts on the walls. And the whole idea of a shadow is not that a shadow has no reality, but that its reality is gifted and granted from something with a greater reality, right? So shadows aren't evil. They're not bad. 
they're just not the real thing itself. And I think what the author is basically trying to say here is the law in Jewish thought and Christian thought, for that matter, the law given to Moses was a gift. It was an appropriate expression of God's heart given to his people at the time. It was just never the final thing. It was never that which could make God's covenant with God's people come to full fruition, or to use the words of Hebrews, it could not make perfect those who trusted in the law. And, you know, you and I hear that word perfect, and we think about upright moral behavior. Certainly, I think that that idea could be folded into the biblical idea of perfection. But remember, the Greek word translated perfect is telos, which is tied to the word completion or end. Basically, the idea here is that at your conception, there was a concept in the heart and mind of God about who you would become as a resurrected, glorified, fully flowering self. And that right now, you are just a shadow or an image of, of who you will become as a fully sanctified glorified human being. Basically, you're a work in progress. Paul says something similar in Philippians when he writes to them, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. But that, that Greek word translated completion, it's the same root as perfect. Basically, the idea is that God's going to complete or make perfect who you are. And who you are when complete will be perfect. And so perfection and completion are kind of the same in biblical idiom because everything at its full end will be perfect as God sees it. And so it's not that the law was a problem. It's not that the law was a big mistake. It's only that the law could not make you or the world or God's people perfect. It was never designed to do that. Something else was required. And so to kind of set up and to build on this argument of what was required, instead of the giving of the law, there is the giving of God's own son. And the way that's set up is by a very creative reinterpretation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Um, I have that full psalm um, in, in my notes here. But the main thing to know about it is that this is a priestly psalm that would have been kind of uh, perhaps appropriate for temple worship, or uh, it's associated with the, the priestly authors, those uh, according to the order of Aaron and those of the tribe of Levi, which has already in Hebrews um, been lowered relative to Jesus's priesthood because Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so uh, here, this earthly priest says to God, sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. And so essentially what this earthly priest names is something that the book of Hebrews has already named, which is that the offering of animals is not the fullness of what God wants. That, that ultimately what this priest is saying is, you've given me an open ear. I'm giving you myself. I'm, I'm listening for your spirit. And, and so what the author of Hebrews does is basically cross out the word open ear and insert the word body. 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And so kind of what's happening here with this creative reinterpretation of Psalm 40 is that the new priest is Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, but what he offers uh, is not an open ear, but his body, ironically, to be the offering, right? And so um, God here does not receive an offering. God himself makes the offering because the son takes on a body. And he says, see, I have come to do your will, O God. Um, and so we can talk a little bit more about whether or not this, this makes sense to you. But essentially what the author of Hebrews is trying to set up is where the high priest still makes an offering, but it's not an earthly high priest who offers an animal, but the son of God who is given a body and who then offers that body uh, as the sin offering, as the one true sacrifice that can remove sins. But in doing so, and I know it's a very kind of technical argument, but grafts us into his body. And so this idea of God offering his body, you know, we can really tease out all the different implications of that. Certainly it's what we celebrate at Christmas with the Feast of Incarnation, the word becoming flesh, but it's also what we do every single week at church. God offers us his body we call it the body of Christ. It's Holy Communion. And then what happens? We all receive the bread, the body, and then we call ourselves the body of Christ. And then we're kind of sent out into the world as the body of Christ uh, to feed others and to invite them into the family. And so this, this offering of a body, it certainly speaks to what Jesus did once and for all on the cross, but it also still speaks to what happens sacramentally even today in the church. And this would have been a Eucharistic community where the body of Christ was given in accordance with God's will. Why? To make perfect those who are being sanctified, those who approach. And so the idea is that rather than following the law, uh, the gift of God's body is what makes us perfect, what brings us to completion. Um, and, and I, you know, as a priest, I, I really think of this very sacramentally. What is it that I can do or receive to do my part in God's work of making me perfect or bringing my life to completion? It, it might sound kind of small, but I can go forward and I can receive communion. I can take Christ's body into myself. And we can uh, view that very literally, and we can also view it very symbolically all at the same time. And as we take Christ into ourself, something changes in our hearts. And this is what we're talking about here in verse 16, when the covenant that God makes with us is a covenant where the law is written not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. I will put my laws in their hearts I will write them on their minds. This is picking up on the imagery of uh, the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel who say a day is coming, says the Lord, when I will remove their heart of stone and will give them a heart of flesh. 
where I will write my law on their hearts. And so one of the things that we just have to like be super clear about is that the author of Hebrews is not walking away from the tradition of the people of Israel. He's not uh, cutting ties with that and then starting this new idea. Rather, he is saying, I'm holding us accountable to that tradition. It is the tradition of the prophets to say that the covenant was always meant to be written on our hearts. That was always the point. Ezekiel talked about it. Moses talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. And guess what? Now that day is here. That is what God is doing to this new high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so because God has kept his promise, because God writes his law on our hearts, because that's the foundation, that means that you and I can persevere. Why? Because we have Christ's body, both sacramentally, both in terms of the incarnation, both spiritually, but, but Christ has given us his body so we can therefore persevere. Um, and so how does that uh, kind of play out with this letter? It's about approaching God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You know, essentially, um, to kind of put this in like modern language, guilt for the most part is a, is a pretty wasted emotion. Um, your heart is to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Why? Is it because you don't do bad things? Absolutely not. If you're like me, you do lots of bad things. Um, some things you intend to do, some things you don't. There are moments when you fail to be empathetic and kind, when you say silly things, when you have bad thoughts, whatever it happens to be. Uh, the reason our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is because our great high priest has already atoned for all of our sins. And so if we feel guilt, uh, which I think is a, a helpful emotion, shame is a completely unhelpful, unproductive emotion, but guilt can just be cognitive dissonance between our behavior now and, and who we think we should be. And so we kind of feel that, but then we learn from it. But if guilt lasts for more than a day, I mean, I'm not sure what we're doing. Um, and so the, the, the author of Hebrews says, don't let your guilt last more for a day. Even if you feel guilty over the fact that you still feel guilty, don't let it last more than a day. Um, your, your heart is to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And from that place, we meet together, right? We provoke one another to love and good deeds, and we don't neglect to meet. And, and I want you to notice this connection, right? Because usually whenever we feel bad about ourselves, that's when we're the hardest on others. Uh, that's just a, a great psychological truth that the Bible knew well before any modern day therapist did. Uh, but if our heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and we're not focused on all the things we're doing wrong, guess what that frees up mental and emotional space to do? To provoke each other to love and good deeds. If I'm not wallowing in my own guilt, I'm more free to help you be a loving person and to think creatively about how to do good in this world. And then he says, let's not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but let's encourage one another as we see the day approaching. 
This, of course, is the day of judgment when Christ will return. Uh, and um, basically, as C.S. Lewis says, when the author of the play steps onto the stage, the play's over. And so as we await for that day, um, let's not neglect to meet together because we need to encourage each other. We need community. We cannot do this on our own. Um, verses 26 through 31 suggests that this day of the Lord will not be pleasant for all. Um, you know, we can have some conversation about that. Um, but I think for the author of this community, he's mindful that there really are people out there who are persecuting the church. And he has something to say about that, right? This is not the comfortable modern West where we each kind of worship our own God in peace. This is a persecuted community. So, you know, the author of this uh, letter says, um, you know, um, the people persecuting them, they might have to give an account to God for that. And he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, but I think the main point here whenever there's this quote, which often surfaces in Paul as well, about vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, which comes from the prophets. The whole point is that you and I are freed from the burden of having to, you know, uh, pay people back for the wrongs they do us. Like if there is justice to be done, you don't need to worry about that. Your job is to forgive and we will trust that God judges justly. And then at the end, uh, I call this like the final encouragement. He reminds them that in the early days of their faith, that they endured a hard struggle, that they were publicly exposed to abuse, that they were persecuted, that they were partners with those so treated. Really just a great reminder that in the early church, everyone was an adult convert, right? This is a new faith. Uh, they were converts from Judaism, from paganism, and that this was not a popular choice. And so I, I remember in high school, it was a cool thing to, you know, be part of Young Life and to wear the Jesus shirt. And, you know, people patted me on the back for that, uh, made me a little bit more popular with that group. Uh, there's no equivalent of that in the early church, that people were persecuted, especially when they left their faith. And um, Barbara shared uh, just really beautifully um, on Sunday just about how uh, it was a hard thing to be baptized, uh, to give her life to Christ, to live, leave Judaism, and that, you know, she wasn't persecuted and, and publicly exposed to abuse, but that, you know, that was, that was a really, really hard thing. There was a struggle to walk away from um, a community to join the church. And that struggle was really amplified in the earliest days. Uh, and there was real persecution and real abuse that people had to face. But they did this because they knew that they possessed something better and more lasting, to use the language of verse 34. They cheerfully accepted the plundering of their possessions because they knew that they possessed something better. And in a sense, this Hebrews is all about that's something better. And whenever it ends with this business about not being among those who shrink back and so are lost, it's really not so much a, a moral exhortation, but a reminder that what we possess in Christ is so valuable. It's so wonderful that if there is a cost to pay, 
if we have to make sacrifices or if the road is a little bit more difficult, it's a way of reminding us that what we possess now being Jesus's brothers and sisters is far better than anything we lose. And so in a sense, you know, Hebrews would say it's a bargain of the lifetime. You might lose some things along the way. It might be difficult, right? But what you are given in terms of friendship with Jesus, fellowship in the church and eternal life, it's the best deal in the world.